Hey y'all, Greg Armstrong here, pastor of a new church, the host of the Gospel and Race podcast. I am calling for all pastors, church planters, and leaders who feel an intentional call towards multi-ethnic ministry. You know, I looked for a long time to try to find a tribe that could help me sort out the complexities of multi-ethnic church planting. Well, look, family, we've created this space for you to enter into a community of like-minded leaders who will sort and discern together how we lead faithfully in the multi-ethnic space. We call it the Multi-Ethnic Leaders Network. Real easy, I want you to go to multi-ethnicnetwork.com. I want you to get all the information you can regarding how we're going to move forward together and journey in all that God's called us to do as multi-ethnic leaders in his kingdom. I'll see y'all there. Welcome to the Gospel and Race podcast. Bro, we're doing it again. And I'm excited, man. I, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful to have these conversations for the purpose of Christ's church. I, I actually really always, Garrett, I want to always make sure people know that up front because uh, we love Jesus. We love his church. But we also know that with our ethnic differences, our cultural complexities, that we need to take we need to sort out some of the tension in that in order for us to be our best selves as the kingdom of God. And so that's why we started this podcast to have these very intentional, pivotal conversations around the gospel and race. And today we're rocking again. Y'all listen to me. I got my man here. I'm not even going to play around today. My guys here, Daniel Yang, wherever you're at, just just give a holler because this guy's one of my favorite people. Period. Daniel, welcome, man. Welcome, welcome. Man, that, that's a big setup. But I hear crickets. I don't think anybody's <laughs> They're shouting for you, bro. I'm telling right you. Dude, I'm telling you, man, I am so I told Garrett, well, we told you this earlier, mm. Garrett and I. Um, top three people. I mean, you were like one of the first names. If we're going to do this podcast, let's get Daniel. Um, has helped me imagine and shape um, what church planning, missiology, um, missional engagement, what that looks like. And, you know, uh, I, I didn't know much about this world of church planning and all that and, and, and pastoring. And I was just going to start a church like and in the black community you know we we got a hundred churches on one block and i was gonna start one just like the one i came from until i ran into uh minds like yours mm. that helped me settle down and say okay what is the per what are we doing here and so i'm grateful for you being here today and we're going to talk about multi-ethnic church planning we're going to talk about minority church leaders in multi-ethnic spaces <sighs> mm. man this this is it right here so let me let me i had to write this down because my god has got some some work that he's doing in the kingdom that I'm very grateful for. So, Daniel, the director of Church Multiplication Institute at Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, boom. And you're also assisting in planting the Prodigal Network, which mm -hmm. is a church here in the western suburbs. So we're essentially planting in the same geographical region. But then also, he is the author of Inalienable. Did I say that right? That's right. Marginal Voices. Um, well, marginal voices helping save the American 
Church. Daniel, welcome, bro. Yeah, man. Th- thanks for having me. I-, I think the coolest part about like doing this with you is like we're just friends, bro. For so. real. It's the it's a fact. And so yeah. just like we met at um where where were we at? Uh, where do we eat at Mission Barbecue? Mission Barbecue. Just at Mission Barbecue <laughs> talking about <laughs> church and church planning. We're just gonna do this here and invite all of our friends in to be a part of this conversation. Um when I, I it's funny, I was talking earlier about how we first met mm-hmm. and um you know, me and Daniel, our dispositions are different. Like, I'm totally like, yo, let's go, what's going on? And Daniel will process and will drop on you knowledge that will make you think a little bit. What I loved about meeting you was um, you met with me for lunch and I'm like, dude, I want to plant churches and they got to be multi-ethnic and black people are going to save the multi-ethnic. I was saying all kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. Like black minority leaders are going to save the multi-ethnic church and racism and yada, yada, yada. And then we just started having conversations. That's how we met. That's how we mm-hmm. essentially met. And from then on, we've done ministry together. Our churches are sharing space together in terms of wor- worshiping together in certain environments and uh, very thankful for what we get to do together in the kingdom. Yeah, Amen. Likewise. So likewise. good, man. Tell us a little bit about like what's going on in your world right now, man. Just yeah. and I'm going to jump into some stuff I want us to talk about, but just kind of update us on what's going on in your world right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is I'm raising young adult children right now. So Bro. that's what's going on. Yes. So, and they give me so much insight into like, what's, what's like, what's most important when I think about the future. Yeah. Because uh, sometimes the future can be so abstract. You're trying to figure out like, how do we do this for the next 10 years? But man, it comes down to like, how, how am I doing something that makes sense to this 21, 22 year old yeah. that they feel like, man, I can see Jesus in that. I can see how this fits with my non-believing friends. I can see how this fits with my Hispanic friends, my black friends, my white friends. And so like, that's been the most exciting thing for me is to be a part of uh, helping shape my, you know, again, discipleship starts in the home really. Yeah. And I'm realizing that at this stage of life, discipling my kids has everything to do with how effective I'm going to be in this like missional space that we mm. define as church planting yeah. or leading a church. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, and you're from, you're from big D originally, right? From Detroit. Detroit. D-town. I'm from Detroit. Yeah. yeah. So I grew up, uh, in Detroit, in the city. Um, so my parents moved there when I was seven or eight. And, um, if you've seen the movie Grand Torino, that was, a lot like what I grew up. Um, yeah. So part of my story is my parents were refugees from Laos, uh, came here in 1979. I uh, was born in Illinois, but we moved quickly to, to Detroit pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And so most of my experience growing up uh, from you know grade uh, three, four, and five, all the way up to high school, I graduated from Detroit Public Schools. Mm-hmm was predominantly a uh, refugee immigrant growing up in the inner city black communities of United States. So that mm. was my upbringing. So most, I tell people, my prophets were, you know, my Angelou, you know, Langston Hughes, yeah. Alex Baldwin, Alex Haley. Yeah. And these were the prophets that I read in high school. And so that shaped my thinking quite a bit. And uh, it has a lot to do with like even my missional call. Yeah. So, yeah. You graduate high school, you mm-hmm. move on. Yeah, uni- got married at 19. So my wife and I uh, got married at 19. Uh, went to University of Michigan. Bro, you got um, married 19. Yeah, yeah. My first son was born. I was 21. So, nice, bro. Yeah, 43 right now. Mm-hmm. Half of my life, more than half of my life, has been spent 
uh, married and parenting. Yeah. So beautiful family, by the way. I yeah, love them all. Yeah. So. And then uh, first career was uh, software, and then felt the Lord call us to mission. Didn't know what that was. Eventually found church planting. Yeah. And then we were a part of planting churches in Detroit, Dallas, Toronto, and now here in Chicago. Oh, come on, man. Yeah. I love it. And I, look, I, I remember you dropped a, a picture on social media, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. your old high school picture. You was oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, where is that Daniel at, man? Had that was some hair. <laughs> had, had my leather jacket on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Had a, a gold chain, but I also had a Bible in hand. Just saved, <laughs> man. Saved in urban. That's what you were. <laughs> saved in urban. <laughs> yeah, man. I love it, man. Well, I'm, uh, I, I want to I want to talk about. Um, because we can talk, this podcast could be ours. So I want to yeah. really tame myself and us. Um, I want to talk about like church planting. I found church mm-hmm. planting when I was working for a church on the West Coast in Arizona. And I didn't know about church planting per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew about starting a church. That's what we call them, the black community, start a church. But on the West Coast, this planting thing was happening all over the place. And uh, they were getting it, actually, I found out they were getting it from Willow here. Mm. So all of that energy of church planting, sort of the attractional church movement that was happening on the West Coast. And um, but the apostolic side of it, this pioneering side of it is what grabbed my heart, my wife's heart. And that's when we we felt a call to plant a church. Right. And in all the sense of the word having not been resourced or even even educated at the time, but we felt this call. Um, moved back to Chicago for the purpose of planting a church, and the rest is kind of history over some years, et cetera, et cetera. So I get into this world of church planting, and it took a little while to determine God has called us to what we've called in the, the modern American church, multi-ethnic mm-hmm. church planting. Right. And so I want to dig into that a little bit because multi-ethnic and I've already been saying it on previous podcasts, but multi-ethnic is almost like a taboo word. I know in some cultures, in, in, in some black, some segments of the black culture, when I say multi-ethnic, they say that's a white church. It's just a white church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other people challenge it by saying, well, multi-ethnic or multicultural, which I get that distinction. Or some people rather say multiracial. I use multi-ethnic because I believe that multi-ethnic churches that are planted bring to the table the various nuances of everyone's ethnic background. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. And then, of course, the cultures come along with it, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about multi-ethnic church planting. And I want you and I to figure out how we want to define it yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> today. Yeah. So what do you define a true biblically centered multi-ethnic church today? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't think I don't think Scripture like gives us like a tremendous limitation on what does that local expression have to look like. Yep, right. I mean, you can point to yeah. People will say sometimes like it's the church in Antioch and not the church in Jerusalem. Right. And that's probably true because the church in Antioch, as you look at how it's described in the Book of Acts, there are people from different parts of the Mediterranean area in northern Africa that compose the church in Antioch. So there definitely is that national component, ethnic component. But when you think about like, like, is there a prescriptive model? I mean, not really, but there's some theological, like there's some theological underpinnings of what Christ came to bring. Right. And you're looking at Ephesians chapter two and three. 
and you realize that, you know, when the body is being the body, then um, it is highly aware that there are like social uh, mm-hmm. barriers that shouldn't be erected. Right. And right. I think that's really like that's that that's got to be like that that constant like question that you're asking yourself like are we erecting social barriers mm. in this congregation like because mm. jesus died so that those social uh barriers wouldn't be erected right 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 and right. so i think when you begin asking that question as a church planter like what are the social barriers that have been erected cultural barriers that have been erected that um that i'm living into that I'm blind to, that I'm not letting the blood of Jesus to tear down. Like, I got to do that work inside of me first. Right. I got to deal with my own, like, I, if, if I'm talking to a potential church planter, he or she, and they've got this grand vision to plant a multi-ethnic church, the first question I'm going to ask is, how has Jesus dealt with your own racism in your own heart? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How has Jesus dealt with, like, your own biases? Yeah. You know, how has Jesus shown you tremendous love for people that have a different social cultural background because if you hadn't experienced that yet Hmm. it's going to be a rough ride trying to experience that for the first time while trying to lead a church and so i think there are some things that um as the planter or missionary team that wants to start this endeavor they have to really go to scripture and say where is jesus confronting these things in my own life yeah so case in point man for me just to bring some personal narrative, you know, I grew up, again, refugee immigrant family. Uh, ethnically, we're Hmong. Nationally, from Laos, but uh, we, we, don't, you know, my parents never had national leaders because we would be considered a ethnic minority in the country of Laos. Mm-hmm. So fought a war uh, with the Americans in Laos. Americans pulled out in 1975, and so we ended up coming here. Um, and then, uh, although I was born in the cornfields of Illinois, eventually, you know, grew up in the inner city of, uh, of Detroit. And so there's just all sorts of like social layers that we're having to navigate. So a lot of Mm anti-blackness, you know, a lot of like the, the, the gap between me as an inner city immigrant kid and whites was tremendous. Like, if I were to try mm. to fill that gap, I would have to leap over Hispanic and African Americans just to meet a white person. You I mean, weren't even pro- in proximity of white people? Not even close. I mean, you all have probably have are familiar with, with the, the border 8 Mile because of Eminem. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I grew up at 6 and a half and 7 Mile. Mm. And so territorially, we were just so separated from the suburbs and everything that that represented and you know the whole history of like the development of you know redlining going you know the development of redlining to now the development of the suburban communities and the white flight all that stuff you know that happened 20 25 years before we arrived yeah and so uh i'm immersed into this world of like you know um the cold war which is what brought my family here mm-hmm. right is america's war against communism all across the world and then now what was happening in the deterioration of the inner city of, you know, the rust belts of America. And so these are the layers that I had to really sort through before I could even get to the point where I felt like I had some semblance of there was some reconciliation within myself, yeah. within myself, that I could truly love somebody that's different from me. And I think that's that, that work isn't easy and it's not apparent at first, right? 
Um, I think f- for some of us that were called into or that were drawn into multi-ethnic ministry, if we had to be honest with ourselves, it was because we liked the idea of being in a room that had a whole lot of different kinds of people yep. and that we were part of the center of attention. Mm. Now, I don't think people would say it like that, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> superficially, <laughs> but because Wait. that version of it, yeah, was uh, yeah. I'll be I'll be very careful in saying this. There was a white guilt model of multi ethnic church that mm. still was like, okay, you know, how do we actually reconfigure our room so that it can be more ethnically diverse, so we don't have to carry you know um, this level of guilt that you know <clears throat> twenty five years ago whites left these communities right right and now we're in the suburbs and the suburbs are beginning to diversify yep and so because that was the first iteration of the modern multi-ethnic church now if you look at like um uh, brooklyn tabernacle they were authentically diverse way before the right. language right. right right but um that was a, a city church mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the 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 models of multi-ethnic that we're most familiar with are suburban models yep and they began diversifying because folks like you and I started moving out of the city yep. into the suburbs. And they had to ask themselves, well, we can't move again because we're not moving to the cornfields. So how do we authentically um, assimilate folks who are different than us? And that became like the, the first version of like, so, so for you and I, I think in some ways, or I, I would say, let me speak for myself. When I first learned about multi-ethnic ministry, it was that, it was that version of the church. Yeah. I had inherited a white understanding of, of multi-ethnic church. How do you get a diverse room where culturally people can still assimilate to my culture? But what I didn't realize is that, like, I, I didn't come from a white culture. Right. So I had to learn white culture and a white model of church in order for others to be willing to assimilate to my culture, which, again, was not indigenous to me. Mm. So there was layers of things that I was dealing with, and... Um, I felt like the Lord uh, used my naiveness mm-hmm. of wanting to plant a multi-ethnic church to do like some really uh, significant heart work and trying to get me to just be proud of like my ethnic heritage. Man, that's strong. So, you know, this this is one thing that I, I want you and I to chop it up about this because um, everyone knows I'm a Willie Jennings like like well, I love Willie Jennings and he talks about glorified white bodies. And the idea is that um, in modern American multi-ethnic construct, Mm -hmm. and I'll use the church specifically, not just the world, but that we are actually assimilated into a way of being based on the example of whiteness, right? Now, this is not antagonistic against my white brothers and sisters, right? Like, this is not, this is not, an antagonistic statement against my white brothers and sisters who are leading faithful in these spaces. The, the thing is, I think as minority church planters, one, one, a person like myself who didn't have much of an example of church planting in proximity. I know black African-American leaders have planted churches for generations. I didn't have it in my purview to have an example to say that was a, a, a church planter. So I was adopted in, Right. By churches that call themselves multi-ethnic that were led ultimately by white leadership, white boards, et cetera. But the the ticket to get in was the assimilation to the dominant culture. 
in some in some places intentional in some places just not intentional just having the raw desire to be faithful to the kingdom um i don't know if many people understand that kind of processing and discipleship that that those of us like myself i'll speak for myself who have desired this multi-ethnic imagination of the gospel Mm -hmm. we've had to pay a price for it right we've had to pay a price to assimilate to look at the white glorified bodies in, 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 in reference to that quote and say, I need to be that in order to be a part of this. And for me, that's where a lot of the tension came in because after a while, when, um, I think Corey Edwards talks about this a little bit as well, when, when the social disparities happen that begin to invade a congregation that is supposedly multi-ethnic, now we're all feeling different things and there's no room or table to process those cultural nuances. Is that fair to say? Like, is that a fair assessment of a person of color, a minority trying to get into multi-ethnic church planning spaces? I, I think the, I think uh, your experience uh, would resonate with a lot of people. Okay. You know, I, I think, I think likewise, my, my experience and by and large, I've had a pretty good experience. You know, I mean, I've had a lot of moments where I know uh, that people probably um, unintentionally tokenized, you know, me. Uh, And then I have to be honest with myself that there are times where I think I um, was was more than willing to be a part of something because I realized that I fit a particular quota or need Mm. for diversity. So... You know, those are things that hard, are hard to admit. So I, I, I don't think that it would be an uncommon experience for a person of color to say um, that most of their experiences in, uh, let's say, you know, white multi-ethnic spaces has been to assimilate to um, that model. But I'll, I'll say this, and this is not me trying to, like, um, win an audience, but I, I think uh, for, for those white leaders that I've worked with, like, I never once second-guessed their intentions, that they yeah. were trying to do something that God had called them to do. I think that they had a biblical uh, rationale, and I think that w- in retrospect, as I look back on my own experiences and I can evaluate my particular you know, experience in those spaces, and I, I know we're going to talk way beyond just kind of you know, white-led, multi-ethnic spaces. Sure, sure. But in, there is a great intention, great motivation, biblical motivation, even good execution at times. Mm-hmm. But I realized that, like, at the end of the day, like, um, that was still, like, their, their space. Like, that, that's their God-given assignment. You know, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't ask somebody to be something that they're not. They were born, right? Yeah. And I began to realize that, oh, you know, it's like you do need to broaden tables— but you also need to build new tables. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I felt fortunate that my experience and my continued experience, because I still continue to work uh, to serve in, in predominantly white spaces, is a is a glimpse into like the Lord. Um, again, it boils down to my personal narrative, mm-hmm. like the Lord providing a vision for how could I be a part of building new tables so that others will have, you know, a, a shoulder to stand on, yep. right? And I realized that, like, that's a place of access. You know, others would say, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a, it's a power distance that some of us share with, with white uh, leadership. But I, I, I think the general sense that I have is, like, 
the Lord has given me some responsibility, and I want to steward my responsibility. And that's irregardless of like uh, my my current like power distance to to white leadership. Mm-hmm. That I realize that now, as a forty three year old, mm-hmm. that I have responsibility to build new tables. That's huge because you know a lot of my um, a lot of my black brothers and sisters that I talk to about these multi ethnic spaces, mm-hmm. they're like, dude, why are you? Why are you doing, like, why are you in that? Mm-hmm. Why are you, like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to try to, and I've always felt that same burden. Like somebody is, somebody is going to be called into this table setting of mm-hmm. sorts or this bridge building in regards to racial matters and the kingdom. And it's something that I think the church, we can't run from it. But we do need prophets and leaders and voices who will actually steward the calling. And um, and I have many reasons why I would want to walk away from it. But I've always been called back mm-hmm. to being a part of the solution, if you want to call it a solution, or the stewardship, as you said, yeah. the stewardship of multi-ethnic spaces or even spaces that are predominantly white, where you've been given a level of access to bring voice and change in the room. Um, I, I believe in the multi-ethnic church. As a matter of fact, I, I believe, tell me if I'm crazy here. I believe the multi-ethnic church when stewarded well and led by the power of the spirit in community and in kingdom centered, Jesus centric reality. Mm -hmm. I believe the multi-ethnic church and the church at large is the answer to racial disparities in our country and in our world. And we understand that racism or racisms aren't even prominent in many areas of the country. There are other kind of polarizations. But in, in terms of North America, America, where we serve, I believe that the multi-ethnic church has the ability to usher in God's revival power towards racism and injustice. The reason being is because um, as you said earlier, when we sort out our own personal racisms, sort those things out in the presence of the Lord, filter through the cross, filter through Jesus. Now we have expanded our tables to really lean into our ethnic differences, honoring God in his kingdom. Then that kind of discipleship leans into the world. And now we're able to further disciple the world into a unity that they know nothing of, mm-hmm. led by the church. But I believe that it needs to happen from the multi-ethnic expression of the church. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like a multi-ethnic church. I mean expressions, yeah. multi-ethnic life, multi-ethnic churches, mono-ethnic churches in relationship with other churches, forming multi-ethnic leadership, right? Having different leaders of ethnicities come together in unison. And I believe that's the answer to racial disparities. Am I crazy there? Or can we? Do, can you see or have an imagination for how the multi-ethnic church engagement unity, not the white church, not the black church, not the Asian church alone, but that the, the, the communal church engages racial ju- injustice? Yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're right, uh, uh, Greg. I mean, partially because I think because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But, but I think, let, let me develop your idea out uh, some more because, uh, so let's first start with the local level. Yeah. The local church, like a, a, a congregation, a multi-ethnic congregation. If you think about what, what that 
means is that if I belong to a multi-ethnic congregation, I have now willfully participated in this liturgical community that is going to regularly confront difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And especially if, let's say, I look different than some of the senior leaders, or I look different from my elder, or or if I'm the elder, I look different from the ones that I'm leading. I'm constantly in regular rhythm of navigating uh, uh, power dynamics that is shared with society. Yeah. But then the solution being the gospel, right? Yeah. And so you don't have any other socially constructed space other than the local church that is going to afford you that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, George Yancey, who is a sociologist out of Baylor, uh, probably most of his research was when he was at uh, University of North Texas, uh, racial, beyond racial gridlock, yeah. the author of these books. He, he, he actually says that the, the local church actually has something to teach society at large because the local church has the, that common rhythm of doing life together with people, yeah. potentially, who are different than, than yourselves. And that becomes a context in which you actually understand the Bible in the way that the Bible is written, specifically the New Testament. And then also how the gospel effectively brings change to you. If you only primarily deal with the gospel as like my personal sins that I committed against God and not the sins that potentially my parents committed against my neighbor. Come on. Or potentially, you know, the, um, the, the leaders of our immediate community, uh, you know, uh, uh, committed against uh, people of another community. If I don't allow the gospel to also inform that, then I actually diminish, like, the power of the gospel, really. Hmm. And it's only in the congregation um, that has that regular rhythm. Now, I'm not saying that you couldn't experience reconciliation outside of the congregation, but only the local church has that rhythm of regular life, doing life together, rehearsing the gospel to one another, being in each other's spaces. What's hard about, like, being—and I'm not against homogenous churches, because there's sometimes— uh, a real necessity for homogenous, homogenous churches for a season. What happens is that uh, when you're in a homo- homogenous environment, you actually you don't have the uh, the need to rehearse like some of the inequities that are being experienced because you're self-contained. Like the stories mm-hmm. are self-contained. Mm-hmm. Your stories don't have to interact with other people's stories, right? Mm. And so you're diminished because of that. And so I think you're absolutely right, because what you end up actually experiencing at a congregational level spills over into your work life, spills mm. over into the civic life, spills over into how you think about, you know, things like voting or things like even like, you know, shopping, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually it uh, changes things like your your school. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think the church is now in a position of actually being prophetically spoken to by culture. Because culture is screaming at the church, saying that, like, you all need to be much more engaged in this because we can no longer carry this burden. Right. Like, you know, there's that passage in Romans uh, uh, chapter 8 where Paul writes that, like, all creation is groaning. Yeah, yeah. Waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Yeah. And I think that we're in a culture moment where culture is kind of like, we can't keep carrying this burden. Like those of you who belong to the kingdom of God, you need to figure this out. It's weird because my kids now are, they're in a different um, space racially than 
I was growing up mm -hmm. and now in terms of how they interact with cultures. You know, a part of a part of what I'm always advocating for is the planting of multi-ethnic churches in the suburbs where there is this this uh, this tension of difference, right? There's it's happening, right? Gentrification is pushing folks out of the city, suburbs are becoming more multi-ethnic. Our schools are becoming more diverse in our community here, 30 to 40% persons of color in the schools in this area. And so my kid has this Muslim friend, mm -hmm. Arab, uh, black, white. They are leaning into some different realities than I feel like we were awarded the opportunity. Now your context was different but it's a no-brainer to them. So we're talking to them about racial injustice. When they're watching like what's going on, maybe you know, culturally now with our age demographic and older or politics or whatever, they're just kind of like, what's going on there? Mm -hmm. like, what's, going, what's happening there? Why would they do that? Why would, they, why, why would Asian hate be a thing? What's happening here? Not that that wouldn't be experienced in their, in their, in their lifetime or growing, but I think we have a responsibility to steward this conversation of racial injustice, multi-ethnic reconciliation, et cetera, because they're coming up in a d different situation. Are you seeing that with your kids at all? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think the the race conversation is has evolved and iterated way beyond some of the um, previous conversations that most of us grew up in. So let's say, for instance, like you mentioned this, for a lot of folks, Race was primarily around the black-white binary at some yep. point, right? Yep. And this is probably true for most of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. Because in 1980, uh, America was still 83% white. So, and uh, uh, African-Americans made probably 11, 12% of the population. And yeah. so those were the two majority uh, populations in the United States. Think about that. I was born in 1979. Yeah, so, that's crazy. Uh, you know, f uh, 40 years ago, America was still, uh, you know, 80 plus percent yeah. white. So it was almost right that the conversation was around black, white binary. Yeah. Almost. It made sense, right? It made sense. And then you get the influx of immigrants uh, started in the mid 70s. By the time you get into the 80s and then the early 90s, you have a huge influx of uh, not just Eastern Europeans. They had always been steadily coming. But from uh, Asia, my parents came from Southeast Asia, East Asia, from, uh, you know, different visa statuses. Yep. Some came as, you know, education and economic reasons, and some of us came as refugees. And you get to this point now where, like, it's it can't be black-white binary. And so our mm. kids are born into a society where it's much more complex. Conversations are much more nuanced. Um, and the um, and the opposition towards racial harmony has also become more complex mm -hmm. and more nuanced, because now you are introducing the layer of like, uh, what does it mean to be an American? Because some people will rally around nationalism, yeah. where they wouldn't rally around race. Because this is complicated, because you will have uh, Asian American nationalists yeah. that would rally with white American nationalists. And so they would form something, but they would not feel comfortable connecting in other spaces because they rally around nationalism hmm. uh, in, in, in their kind of patriotic bent, yep. right? And so they would rally around that. 
but then they wouldn't, you know, uh, socioeconomically, they would be very different than like somebody who grew up in the inner city who would not identify kind of like a, I'm, I'm talking about Christians. That, sure, that sure, is, yeah. sure. And so uh, this is where I think our kids are much more um, like attuned to this conversation. Mm. Like they, I don't think they would accept like um, the colorblind rationalization. Right. Right. Um, as easy as the generation before. And that means also that they also uh, need to see the solutions be more than just like this philosophical, like, you know, we can, we just need to like not see color. Right. Um, because their reality is that, no, as I sp- step into every space that I'm in, like I see color and I, don't, I just don't see color, but I see cultures and I see people that have something beautiful to bring. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're very sensitive that like I don't want my preference to squash the beauty of my friend's preference. Mm. So how do we create something where both of us can be our full selves? Like that to me is a natural conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the circles that you and I have probably grown up in, you know, we're I'm, I'm a Zennial, so Gen X or millennial. I just made I'm like just in the millennial. You're just the millennial. I'm like the 1981. 82. Oh, oh, yeah, you're, you're a full-blown millennial. No, that's like, I'm on the edge, <laughs> man. I, and, and some people even oust me out of it. Really? They say it's not really, yeah, yeah so. Yeah. You're, you're a geriatric millennial, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, whereas, like, for me, again, and you heard it in my own personal narrative, like, I had to, I had to, I had to get out of the inner city men- mentally, because I grew up in the inner city. Yeah, yeah. And I had to find a way to make it in like white evangelicalism in order to to find that I actually need to just find my authentic self. Mm. Whereas my kids are just saying, "Eh, I'm going to shortcut all that. I'm just going to be my authentic be self." Me. And so that's, They won't have hoops. They won't have these proverbial hoops less, to jump through. Less, less of them. And which I think is a positive. To me, if you were to say where's progress? progress is that my kids are having to jump through less hoops than I did yeah. in order to find their authentic self. Sure, sure. And I think that's where it's at. And th- to me, and that this is why I think like, um, I don't think anybody has like, a leg up on anybody else. Like right. I think what sometimes has been called white fragility, and I don't think that's necessarily fair all the time to, to but what, what people have labeled as white fragility, I think is actually just this reality that, you know, whites are actually, they're in it with certain people. And they've taken hits. Um, and so now we all realize that we've all taken hits. And so how do we move forward in a way where our kids don't have to take hits? Yeah. And they can actually move forward with um, with optimism and not bitterness and hurt. Yeah, that's good, man. Yeah. I, I um, So in turn, like, I, I want to throw something out at you and mm-hmm. tell me what you think. This is what I believe. I don't even know if I have concrete data on this, but in terms of our Ford movement as church planners, multi-ethnic church planning. I believe that the future of multi-ethnic church planning is in the hands of minority leadership. And I'm gonna tell you why. Some of it could be the, some of it I'm learning that those of my white brothers and sisters are saying, hey, you know what? The power dynamics have been vastly abused in multi-ethnic spaces and the the dismissal of other ethnicities, whether intentional or not, um, has become problematic. And so we want to actually open space for minority church planners to thrive and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
I also think culturally in our society, I believe that as the Lord would open up space for this, that minority church planners can actually invite our white brothers and sisters into a space, into a leadership, into a posture that many have never even understood or realized or even experienced. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost like I, 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 um, I put it like this. Like you don't know a black church context until a big old black church mama hug you and make you cry for no reason at all or <laughs> give you some candy out of a purse or something like that. Just this empathetic, love-filled, non-confrontational in the sense of we're not we're not being combative because of what we know the white race has done to you know yeah because i've gotten that critique as well like you know our persons of color who lead multi-ethnic churches are just trying to reverse the power dynamics and trying to get back at us etc not in that sense but in the sense of like understanding someone's ethnic purity and leaning into the gospel-centered love that's found within it Many of my white brothers and sisters haven't ever experienced that under minority leadership. I think how powerful would it be if we continue, if we, I'm not telling white people not to plant churches, multi-ethnic churches, but I'm just saying how powerful could it be in a posture of minority church planners bringing all of their ethnic beauty and culture that invites others in to an experience never have, that they never experienced and to see this new expression of the multi-ethnic church emerge mm-hmm. out of Asian leadership, black leadership, Hispanic leadership, calling our white brothers and sisters into reconciliation rather than us stepping into a hope-filled reconciliation that may or may not happen. Mm-hmm. Am I crazy on that? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's definitely going to be a component. I mean, it's, if you just look at like uh, demographic data, like the future of America, uh, is going to be minority majority, you know, by 2040-ish or so. Yeah. So, I mean, if the church is going to have a future, if it's going to have leadership, a large number of those are going to be led by people of color. So right. there's no question there. By the way, I love how my ideas, like I throw ideas out, and then Daniel Yang just complete, like he just makes it make sense. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like a ghost writer, you know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm thinking about this. Well, let me give you the stats on that, yeah, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Well, that's because that's that's your, you, your gut is right. I'm just like, confirming your gut. Oh, right? man, just say it so I can write this all down. So, um, <laughs> and, but I'll add to that because I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's a socialist idea. And I'm going to be real okay. careful when I say this, okay, right? Bet. Because I don't want you to get any angry hate mail or, or stuff like that. I'm not a Marxist <laughs> and all that stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but what you're saying, I want to clarify, is not the same thing as like power redistribution, socializing church planting. Facts, right? no. It's not, it's not that. It, um, in, in some ways, what you're saying, I believe, is this work that God is doing, not just here in America, Mm-hmm but it's a work that he's doing all across the world right now where there is no, uh, the church is polycentric now. Mm-hmm. Like there is no headquarters of the church. Like right. if it's, it's not Rome, you know, it's not, I mean, some people want to point to Latin America. Some people want to point to Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely not Western Europe in the way that it's always been. Yeah. Um, and the church is now polycentric and, our local expressions are now reflecting that, you mm. know, like we are much more, I, I am, I am almost, I am almost there where I'm 
more likely to prefer the word the local expression of the global church mm-hmm. rather than this phrase multi-ethnic church mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's too cumbersome to say that yeah, like we are yeah. a local expression of the global church right, it's right, too cumbersome right. to say that but missiologists would say like diaspora communities are transforming christian communities all around the world as a matter of fact you don't have to talk to a, a missiologist there's one uh sociologist here named Stephen warner in um University of Chicago. He said this um, about 15 years ago. He says that um, uh, immigration isn't the de-Christianization of America. It is the de-Europeanization of Christianity in America. Yikes. What he means by that is that like Christianity is a global concept. Mm. It's always it's always been a global concept. It's always meant to be. I mean, from the very mouth of Jesus. When he before he left and ascended, he reminded his disciples that we are a global people. That's mm. where you're supposed to go to the ends of the world. You're, you're not, you know, when we say Matthew twenty eight nineteen and twenty, we implicitly hear colonial missions. Right, right. But Jesus didn't say that with colonial missions in mind. He actually, I, I think, when he said this to this disciples, he he was actually, I think, saying, "You are diminished if you stay a Jewish movement." Mm-hmm. Like you cannot stay a Jewish movement. This was never meant to be a Jewish movement. Read the Torah back in Genesis ch- chapter 3, 4, 5, 12, 15. It yeah. was always meant to be for the Goyim, the, the peoples of the world. And so he's reminding them yet again, you grew up in a Jewish system, a synagogue system. So you got to go into the world. You got to go outside hmm. of yourselves. And when you see bec- when you see people become followers of the way of of, of Jesus, mm-hmm. King Jesus, mm-hmm. you're gonna realize that you're just one of, you know, yeah, you're not the yeah. show. And I think that version, that vision of the global church is just like trickling into the American church. And we're using like this cumbersome language of like multi-ethnic church to yeah, describe that. Yeah. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, they didn't use multi-ethnic church. You know what they used? What's that? Integrated churches. Really? Because it was Jim Crow. That's right. That's it was right. Jim Crow. That's right. And so once Jim Crow went away, you know, six three, sixty four off the books, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't really go away. It just right. took a different. <laughs> took a, a it different, morphed. It morphed. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then you know, in the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, multi ethnic church started emerging. But you know, again, if you were to ask, what is the eschatological reality that multi ethnic church is pointing to? It is this idea that the whole world belongs to King Jesus, yeah, right? Yeah. And so multi-ethnic churches are just local expressions of the global church. Yeah. It's almost like Jesus, it's, it's, I, when you were explaining that, I was thinking about how much discipleship is in go out into all the world. Yeah, go out, Go out into all the world and be influenced by this friction of difference that comes with the totality of my creation, mm-hmm. right? Now I'm shaping all my people, looking at various expressions that we're all supposed to actually be celebrating, right? These expressions. And because he's never had a non-global church in, in his mind. When the church tried to stay localized in Jewish, like that got taken care of real quick when persecution came. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think about like I love what you said about like uh, go into all the world, make disciples, because in the midst of that was them being discipled by yeah. the process, and it wasn't easy. You know, you see Peter having to deal with his social identity as a Jewish person and saying like, I would never eat animals that right. were unclean, 
And yet that's what the Lord Jesus is telling me to do in this vision, right? To go to Cornelius. And so these are the things, again, going back to if you're a young church planter and you want to plant a multi-ethnic church, you have to hear Jesus saying to you, Peter, get up and kill those animals and eat. Because that seems like, like it seems like heretical yeah, that yeah. you would step into those spaces. And I think in some ways that's Jesus dealing with like some of the cultural biases that we have. He had to do that with Peter. He had to do that with Paul. He had to do it with all of his apostles. And the, the early expressions of the church, you think about Antioch, right? Mm-hmm. I love the story of Antioch. Because again, they weren't trying to create a multi-ethnic church. Right. The gospel was reconciling people from different kinds of community. And when they came together in a space, they no longer had like their African identity, their European identity primarily. It was they had their Jesus identity. And there was no other social identifier to describe this group of people. Mm. So it says that in Antioch, they were called Christians for the first yeah. time. And so to me, the term Christian has multi-ethnicity or the global church like loaded into it. It's embedded. It's in the DNA. Huh. And all the messiness that comes with it, right? All the messiness, because that's discipleship. That's discipleship. That's discipleship is messy in itself. Yeah. Dude, that's so good. I'm sitting here just eating this up, man, because I'm I'm just being blessed right now. Thank you, brother. I um a couple more things I, I really want to lean into. The like the future of the multi-ethnic church, right? And you just you just explain a little bit of that now. And I was m- mainly referring to minority led, and we mm-hmm. understand that Jesus sees his church as global. Um, what's about to happen, bro? Like what is about to happen with those who have critiqued the multi-ethnic church and said, well, that's that's not going to work in uh, racialized America and mm-hmm. in, in polarized America. That's not going to work. Let's just stay in our cubby holes and honor Jesus. I get this critique a lot when I talk about racial injustice and yeah. I only talk about racial injustice as it relates to the church and as it relates to the kingdom and how God wants to use these tensions to disciple us into a greater um a greater uh, understanding of his kingdom. Um, but what what do we do with the folks who say that shouldn't even be in the conversation? Like we should all just be, lo- no matter where we are, we should be loving Jesus. Whether I want to be with white people, all black people, whatever. We should be loving Jesus and preaching the gospel because I get that critique a lot. Mm-hmm. Like why do you even have to talk about this stuff? Mm-hmm. Give, give me a little bit on why. Because um, I really think people don't, see the correlation between how we need to work out these tensions and how it honors Jesus and his multi-ethnic vision for the church. Yeah. And so that's always the pushback. Yeah. Well, let me give you, um, I'll give you like a bit of a case study to, to illustrate some principles that we can probably extrapolate to, to, and and this is anecdotal. It'll be about like the Hmong church here in North America. So again, ethnically among immigrants, um, and so the, the suspicion of first-generation Hmong church leaders is to hold on to culture yeah. because they feel like if we hold on to culture, then you know, that will allow us to be ourselves. And then um, if we can be ourselves, we can be more natural and we can continue. And I don't think that that like, is untrue. Mm-hmm. For 40 years, it made sense. It was completely true. Mm. And we were able to plant churches, and, you know, I'm, I'm a product of the Hmong church. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But there comes a point when like that mentality doesn't hold true anymore because like if you only become like a language specific church and if you only hold on to these cultural traditions that you actually learn from a different country, then you begin to lose your children some way, somehow. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is, this is not untrue for Hispanic churches and other, um, other Asian communities as well. Like yeah. they're experiencing this. And so they realized that like, okay, in order for us to really go beyond a, a generation, then we, we can't settle for like assimilation. Right. So, and we, we know we can't say segregated. So, yeah. you know, these cannot be like our models, right? Or they can be, but, you know, segregation means we're slowly going to die off because like um, we're, we're, we're a tradition that's going to slowly fade away. Yeah. And assimilation is we're going to lose ourselves. So there's like some in, incarnational like vision of themselves. They have to find themselves being embedded in other kinds of spaces mm-hmm. where you don't lose yourself. I mean, this is what Jesus did. He embedded himself without losing himself so that he can contribute to the greater to the greater whole. Right. And so I think, you know, with 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 Hmong people, uh, we have to ask ourselves this question. How do we become incarnated into other spaces where sometimes we're the host, sometimes we're not the host? Mm. Like if we're the host of a space, how do we allow people to become incarnated into the space or how do we become incarnational leaders? so that we don't lose ourselves in the midst of leading people that are different from us. But right. at the same time, uh, we also don't push our preference onto other people so sure. much. That's an incarnational question. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is really going to be um, a uh, 21st century skill for the church leader, hmm. is how do I incarnationally lead? Um, because the, the, the skill set of a high capacity leader in the 20th century is how do I create assimilation pathways? Right. Right. And that worked because America up until 1980 was 83% white. white. But the pathway forward in 21st century is how do we create incarnational pathways where people can come into renew church, the prodigal network. And they, you know, Paul says this, this I mean, amazing theology Paul provides. First Corinthians chapter nine, he says that I become all things to all people so that I might uh, win some, right? right? Uh, to the Jew, I become Jew. To the weak, I become weak. But he, he only does that because he knows that he has his identity in Christ. He has the agency to lay down his cultural ethnic identity. But then when he needs it again, he'll pick it back up, mm. lay it down, pick it back up. Our people don't have that skill. Right. They feel like in order to come into your space, like you're taking something from me. It's yeah. not agency. And over time, that becomes trauma, becomes racial trauma. When people take something from you, you didn't lay it down, they take it from you, it's racial trauma. Right, right? which has happened a lot. Which has happened a lot. In church spaces, right? Yep. And so um, incarnational pathways is now teaching people that in Jesus and because of the gospel, you don't have to prefer yourself, but you also don't have to lose yourself. So like Paul, you can lay it down, you can pick it back up, mm-hmm. come into the space, lay it down, pick it back up. And I think that uh, the church leader of the future is going to recognize that, and they're going to learn how to disciple people in that um, so that the places that we create uh, aren't uh, traumatizing spaces, that they're healing spaces. Are we overboard, like, um, 
are we overboard? I, I, I had a pastor friend say, well, my church is multi-ethnic. It's a black church. My mm-hmm. church is multi-ethnic because we're welcoming the white people. Mm-hmm. But we're going to celebrate our blackness, which is the core expression of the church. Yeah. Is that a wrong posture? Or is that a fair posture? Granted, granted, the church is a posture of blackness yeah. and pride and hey, we we've been run over enough. You guys are welcome. We're still we're multi-ethnic, but is that right? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think uh, you will never go into a space that doesn't have some form of majority culture. So or ethnic pride or 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 ethnic pride, which I mean, and, and we could say that in the most positive sense. Yeah, but I'll say this: like if um if 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 a leader were saying that, but their celebration of their like black heritage or Asian heritage was traumatizing to people, um, or was demanding of people uh-huh. something that they could not yet give, then I think that would be unhealthy. Mm. Um, and I think that that is not uncommon, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not a church thing. That is a societal thing. That is a play from culture and society. And I think that, um, yeah. but if you're saying that our blackness, I bet you would heal you. And a white person genuinely believes that. Yeah. I think you celebrate your blackness oh, man, you know, as loud yeah. as possible. Yeah. 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 If, and for some people, like I know in our church, um, for whatever reason, our posture in our church has been healing to people that aren't Asian. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's an amazing thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I celebrate that. I'm not gonna, you know, preach on a Sunday and start talking about Asian pride and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but that's just because that's me. Like I, I don't, you right. know, I don't, I don't uh, wave the flag in, in that particular way. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is a sense in which, when you hold on to your preferences, again, I hate, the, I keep going back to scripture. Yeah. yeah. Come scripture. on, man. We, we we're men Paul of writes, God. Paul writes in Romans 15, I believe. He says, Yeah. Um, we who are strong yeah. have the obligations to bear with the failings of the weak. Yeah. So if you feel strong in something, that means mm. you got to go under. You got to go low. Mm-hmm. Your strength should be serving people, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be this top force pushing down on people. Dude, that's so good. I, you know what? I've seen that played out in our church. So one of the things in our church represented a number of different cultures, ethnicities, um, the resilience of the black mm-hmm. person, which comes naturally with persons of color, predominantly black people because of the struggles, our struggles here in the country, which are a little more prominent than others. And, and everyone's dealt with some disparities in terms of being colored. But the the feedback we'll get is, man, how do y'all hold on? How do you do? How do you? How did you get up there and keep singing every? How did you hold on? You know what I mean? Something that's ingrained into, I want to say, I want to say our blackness, right? It's a part of our DNA. It's a part of our, the mandatory struggle that we've had to go through, right? They, and it's, it's been able to serve, especially my white brothers and sisters who say, I would have cracked under that. Mm-hmm. But you still holding on, so I'm going to keep holding on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's the beauty, based on what you're saying, that's the beauty of how our cultural and ethnic differences can really serve and bring light to someone. You know, another funny thing culturally um, in our church, like um, black people have always had community. I mean, if it's Sunday, we're going somewhere to eat. Go to every restaurant <laughs> in town. 
we taking over the restaurant after church. You understand? Um, but in many of those spaces in the traditional black church sense, not in the, some of the newer modern churches, we didn't do small groups mm-hmm. and table. We did table, but in a different way. Every white person that comes to our church, the first question, when are your groups? And we're like, groups? Like, we, bro, we can't, we're still working on that. You know, we tried that once, you know. And when our church was predominantly black mm-hmm. at the time, we just, we, we tried it. And, and it was just something that wasn't built into our DNA in terms of our ecclesiology. It just wasn't built in. We have church. We're going to experience God. We build community. We're going to have church uh, dinner afterwards. But this idea of like, you know, we've learned to get together. Like we do church. And that's discipled our mm-hmm. people of color into a more robust ecclesiology that says, okay, y'all can have church on Sunday, but we ain't always going to have church. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're going to sit down and have conversation and have coffee. That's a new one for me. Sit down and have coffee. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But isn't that dope? I mean, yeah, I think that's beautiful absolutely. in that we all bring these different cultural and ethnic experiences to the church, um, not not suffocating any of them, but allowing them to serve one another. By the way, what's the guy's name that you shared an article, The Chef, that shared? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, yeah. do you know him? Yeah, Vang, yep. St. Paul, Minnesota. I yeah. share that. All, I I use that example all over the place. We were just talking about it Sunday, about about don't ask for substitutions or something mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Yeah. And um, I thought that was so dope. Being one that I I don't eat much of anything but meat and potatoes. <laughs> I read that article you shared during um, Asian American Pacific Islander Month, and it was just such a blessing to me to don't pull parts of my culture off so that you feel more comfortable with me. Allow me to bring all this sauce and I want you to experience it because it's going to tell a story. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty, I think, of a multi-ethnic community. Yeah. Allowing space for all those ingredients to be to be woven in on the table. So anyway, that was yeah. my, that was so my little good. take. So good. Um, you make me hungry now. Oh, dude I'm, dude, I'm ready to eat. And you promised me some real ramen. Some real ramen. Let's like the it, real man. ramen. Let's do it. By the way, bro, so the ramen that we buy, the the cups, the of little noodles, instant noodles, is that what? Where is I that? Mean, on yeah, the ramen is ramen, so it's a technical term. But if you have fresh ramen, then you it's get a, different. You get a totally different experience. Okay, but that other stuff, it's no, no, not no. like a, a different manufacturer. That's like mac and cheese. It's, oh, it's okay, like, okay. It's like craft, <laughs> right? Because yeah. you can, sometimes you don't even call craft mac and cheese. You yeah, just call yeah, craft, yeah, craft yeah. Craft cheese, just craft cheese. And then cheese. there's like real mac and cheese. Like bro, it's, it's I go in on the ramen little cups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to get the That's real fine. thing. There's no shame in that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I want to end with this because I struggle with this as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, in a multi-ethnic church, I feel like I'm always chasing the affirmation of ethnicities and cultures. Oh, my God. I mean, I remember this year I missed um, uh, the new year. for We have, we have, we have um, oh. Asian, Asian yeah. family. Yeah. And... He's like, hey, you know, what? name it for me. The, the, the Lunar the New Lunar Year. The Lunar New Year, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. The Lunar New Year. And I'm like, oh, man, I missed it. Or I'm like, what month is this? And Black History Month, you know, we're, bro, we're going in. Because mm-hmm. that's what we know. Mm-hmm. Help a young multi-ethnic church planner. How do I affirm both what the dominant um, 
American calendar represents or, yeah. or affirms? And how do I affirm these ethnicities when they become too much to consider? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, I think you're doing it. Like, I think when, when you realize that if there is a constituency in your church that you, you know, you want to honor their traditions and their customs, you know, you might not be able to do it every year, but I think that there's some years where you bring a little bit of intentionality to it. Yeah. And you might say, you know, could I, or, you know, for, if it's not a lot of people, maybe it's just like, Hey, can I come into your home? Can I experience that with you? And it's less about like having some kind of campaign on a Sunday, yeah. but it's about like being able to experience something meaningful with a family. Right. Mm. And I think that that, that particular experience uh, should usually lead, you know, how you do things anyways on a larger scale, because if you don't experience something at a smaller scale, the larger thing you do is really not going to you make that much of a difference anyways. But I think mm. part of it also is, you know, it's just so, I mean, so Lunar New Year falls in the same, it's usually February. So it's the mm-hmm. same, same, same month as uh, African-American uh, History Month. Um, and so I think in some ways, like, you, you know that you can't cater to every nuance, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I do think that there's some sense in which, like, you realize that, you know, I, I, I can't, we can't do, like, we can't always celebrate it so you might have like once a year where you do do like an international food thing yeah we're doing that this year there you go and that's you, a good way and huh? then you at that at that time you allow people to say what culture do you come from what do you celebrate yeah and so it's less about the calendar but it's about the intentionality that you create in the space, and then people can then share what's meaningful to them. That's good. And that can drive, like, uh, the cadence rather than, you know, because there's A endless. Calendar. Yeah, there's endless things that you'll miss. I love the part, though, about the smaller, the smaller scale items coming in, experience it on a smaller level, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of just making a big thing. It's so funny, man. It's, it's so funny. I had my buddy here preaching mm-hmm. on an anniversary, Hispanic, right? He's, you know what I'm saying? He, he, he's killing it. He's killing it. Great, great preacher, great church planner. But then I had another friend here leading worship with us who's also Hispanic, right? And um, so all of a sudden, man, during the worship, he starts like, singing in spanish and i'm looking at my buddy like dude i didn't like i didn't set this up like like <laughs> i did like not just because you're here i didn't know that was gonna happen it just yeah. happened i don't know and it's funny sometimes i don't sometimes i don't really lean into that with mm-hmm. other cultures because i'm not yet fully versed on if it offends them or not mm-hmm. or if it's mm-hmm. tokenism or not being a product of tokenism in yeah. some spaces you you're like dude my calendar dude my dude Black History Month, the calls are coming, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, and, and I don't, I'm not offended by it, yeah. but I do have this sense of, I mean, these folks never call me any other time of the year. So, of course, they want me to come or speak now or be a part now. So, oftentimes, I don't want to impose that same feeling upon sure. other cultures and say, hey, it's Asian American Pacific Islander Month. Like, come do something from your culture. However, I do love this posture of what are we doing outside of the Big Bang on Sunday? Learning about each other's mm-hmm. cultures, you know what I mean? Getting those things in a rhythm. And uh, we're doing something called Every Nation Sunday this year where we're going to do all kinds of food and stuff like that. So I think that's going to be a great a great deal. So um, give me something. Let's, let's encourage the church planner. I mean, they, they've heard me say this on previous podcasts. This space is for 
especially for the minority church planner who feels called to multi-ethnic spaces. It's also for my white brothers and sisters who feel called to lead multi-ethnic spaces, but are learning how to steward them well, right? And then also for churches that are looking to turn the tide from being a homogenous institution or, or organization to a multi-ethnic organization. Let's encourage them. Yeah. Drop, let's end with something. And this has been really dope, by the way. I've been sitting here just learning the whole time. Daniel, I love this. But let's, let's end and encourage those leaders yeah. before we leave. Yeah. You know, I, I want to uh, encourage folks to lean in uh, to to know that as you engage multi-ethnic spaces, you will inevitably make a mistake. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. You'll make a mistake. There is, and those mistakes are in some ways intentional because the mistakes that you make, and sometimes it's forgetting to say something, forgetting to acknowledge somebody Mm -hmm. or maybe overstating something, you know, um, those are the mis- those mistakes are where Jesus meets you, and that's where you get discipled. And I would say this: that uh, the temptation of the world, of the culture that doesn't have Jesus at the center, is to demonize some color, to demonize some culture, um, and to say that like you know this person or that person is worse than this and that. And I think that you know that's not the way of the gospel. That when you engage in multi-ethnic ministry. Like, you have to see, you know, first and foremost, the image of God in everybody. And then you have to see in your Christian brothers and sisters that they are followers of Jesus. They may not be up on the lingo. Mm -hmm. They may not be, like, in the same social location as you. Um, But they also represent some blind spots that you have. You represent some blind spots that they have. And so when you see people as, like, authentic Jesus followers... um, then that gives you more permission to engage them, and it makes it like more palatable when sometimes they make a mistake against you or others. And I think that's so important because when people don't realize that that is what leads you and pulls you into multi-ethnic, they almost automatically assume that everybody is coming into the space in this at the same level. Mm. And that's not the case. It's not the case. The only thing the only thing that equalizes us truly in this conversation is love. And I don't, I don't mean that to sound like cheap mm-hmm. and cute, mm-hmm. but if it's not driven with love, it doesn't matter how eloquent you are in the race conversation. It's not of Jesus. That's good, bro. And so, but when you are driven by love, you can make tons of mistakes, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it'll be because Jesus is pulling you into it. That's good, man. Woof! Come on, church. And, you know, I, I, I want to... I want to make sure we have permission to allow the Holy Spirit to sort out our tension. So along with what you're saying, what I would encourage folks with is, is that entering into a space of multi-ethnic, multicultural brings with it its complexities. And I feel like the modern American church has done a good job of running from the tensions and the antagonisms that shape us in discipleship, Right. And we grab our ball, we get mad, and we go back to our, our neighborhood, to our park. But I want to invite people into sort of a revival of, of sorts mm. where the Holy Spirit can come in and help us deal with these differences, deal with these mistakes, sort them out, leave space for the kingdom of God to invade, 
because I believe this could be the uh, the launching pad of sorts for what God will do next, maybe in the next generation. I have hope for this generation, but I feel like a part of my role is um, preparing for. And I never thought I'd be in that space. I'm still a young man. You're still a young man. We want to see change now. We want to see difference now. And we're seeing some some things happen now. But ultimately, I think a true prophetic voice has the next generation in mind and is always thinking about what can I do while I'm breathing in order to see them flourish in the kingdom. And so I want to invite people into that space of messiness, of uh, multi-ethnic difficulty, and allow the Holy Spirit to sort it out so that we can invade the racial disparities in the world. So, Daniel, thank you, bro. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here, man. You got to come back, bro. And Love to, man. I appreciate what you're doing, man. Love you dearly. And, yo, this is the Gospel and Race podcast. I had Daniel Yang on today, and we're coming back at you. Thankful for you all. We'll see y'all. Peace.